Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epting from HR Harmer in New York City. And I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. So, Charles, today we're talking to someone that that you know quite well. Yes. um, Carol Bomarito is our guest today. Um, Partially, I know her because she's the advertising manager for the Chronicle, uh, the Classic Society Journal. So Mm -hmm. uh, whenever I have to take out an ad, Carol is my uh, first line of defense that I I contact. But more than that, Carol is somebody who I have really enjoyed getting to know uh, over the last couple of years, both through her involvement uh, at at the Classic Society or the Royal Philatelic Society, or just seeing her at shows. She's a, a very accomplished exhibitor. And just one of those people who you can always count on uh, when you bump into her to show. It's going to be a, a, a great interaction. That's you know these little things um, that, that make a show worthwhile. And seeing Carol is is definitely one of those. So it's been uh, over a year now since I last saw her. Yeah, I'm wow. really looking forward to catching up. I've had a couple of phone calls with her in that time. And uh, last one I had, she she uh, fortunately agreed to appear with us on here. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to catch up with Carol. I'm really looking forward to this interview. I, I have not, like you and so many other interviews that we've had, I, I have not yet met her. No, you haven't met her. You you kind of know her because I, I believe recently you read. As as I do every month. Uh, no, she had an article in the in the AP, in the in the buyer's guide. In the March yeah. issue of the, the uh, finalists, there's an interview with Carol. So Yeah, uh, and they, they uh, had a, an act- uh, they showed one of her covers as well from her collection, yeah. Well, ho- hopefully we can um, cover some new ground with her and maybe touch on things that they didn't touch on. Uh, looking forward to that. Well, let's bring her on. All right, here we go. Hi. Hi. Hey, Carol, how's it going? It's going fine, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, nice to meet you. It's good to see you. We haven't seen each other, uh, you know, without collectors club meetings or shows. It's been uh, it, it's been quite a while. So, so first and foremost, how have you been uh, uh, holding up during uh, during quarantine, and what has your philatelic involvement been like over the last year? Well, um, I suffered, um, you know, some uh, challenging things in my life. So I did step back. Uh, not only coronavirus, but as you know, I lost my life partner. So, and then the coronavirus hit, and then I had back surgery. So I kind of stepped back for a while, but I did, you know, I was able to keep up my end of um, my obligations, as you know, to uh, the classic society and to the Royal. And I, I did my job, but now I'm, I'm back. I just recently wrote an article for the um, European Academy's opus uh, 21 and, um, uh, and I'm putting together, uh, I'm kind of like freshening up my exhibit, getting ready for a presentation at the Royal, which had to be postponed, but that's all right. That's Before okay. we talk about your exhibit in particular, can you sort of, uh, walk us through your journey of, of how you got involved in philately and how you got to, to where you are today? Yes, I, this is something I think is important to talk about, not so much for me, but to sh- as an example, because I got into the hobby totally differently than I think a lot of people do. And what is interesting about this is that it 
it shows that there are different paths into the hobby. In other words, you don't have to be a collector from childhood. And um, you don't have to even have the collector gene, which I don't. And you can enter at any time in your life. I was already in my 60s when I started in the hobby. And um, so there's no age limit. And I think that's important for retired people to know because, um, and women, you know, they've maybe retired, they've had uh, responsible jobs, the kids are maybe grown, and they're looking for a more uh, intellectual, challenging hobby. Um, and I just want the word to go out that, that it is possible. I mean, you can get in this hobby at any time and in any way, and you can collect anything. I mean, I just went out and bought what I liked. And then um, when I decided I wanted to exhibit, I had to figure out how to sort of superimpose a story mm. on what I had collected. Whereas some people know what they want, and then they take 20 years to fill everything properly well i i felt i didn't have the 20 years so i just went out and and bought and i was lucky because i was able to do that i mean that is something a lot of people wouldn't be able to do but you could do it at a lesser uh level i mean material doesn't have to be um to be in the hobby to be successful in the hobby to have fun in the hobby you don't have to buy expensive stuff so I think um, that's important for, I don't know if non-philatelists watch this, but if they are, it's important for them to know that there are lots of ways of getting into this, lots of things to collect, um, and um, you can expect a lot of support yeah. from people in the hobby. It's a good point because I feel like we so often hear the story that somebody collected as a kid, got distracted during high school and college, and then had a job and retired and came back to it. I think there's always that. Uh, it's it's a neat and tidy story to say, oh, I came full circle. I started as a kid and now I'm a, an experienced exhibitor. Um, but you're right. That sort of excludes people who don't have the first bit of that circle. I, I, that, that probably comes across as... Uh, you know, they, they've missed their chance. They they missed the boat right. you know, and now they can't get into it. But but you know, you're proof that you don't have to come back to it. You can just come to it. You can just jump in, just yeah. jump in and there'll be something for you. And like I said, people will be very supportive, very supportive. So what was it that grabbed you? What were the these the first things you were buying that, that stuck out to you that that made you say, I, I need oh, them? pretty. Things that are pretty. I come from a design background and I wanted to collect, I only collect things with adhesive stamps because I wanted the color and the variety and the design. And um, uh, so I chose things that looked pretty, had lots of stamps on them because I didn't know what I was doing or that went to interesting places or came from interesting places because I collect to and from the U.S. So um, so that was exciting to me, just like a, a young person who wants to collect the world. You know, I mean, it wasn't exactly that, but it was sort of that kind of excitement about it. 
And that's uh, that's how I did it. And then I decided I wanted to exhibit. So I had to think of some way of pulling the story together. So a lot of people who come into the hobby, they they start collecting. And, and how soon into exhibiting uh, or, or how soon into collecting did you decide you want to exhibit? Because I feel like people hit this kind of barrier where they, they want to exhibit, but they don't know how. Or it's intimidating. It is, yeah. It it's is. It's very intimidating. The judging, I found initially very intimidating. I think um, the judges now approach this feedback in, in a much more um, sensitive way, which I think is very good. Um I got into exhibit, I remember exactly, and I did mention this in that APS article, uh, the Collectors Club One Frame exhibit was coming up. I, I had never exhibited. I didn't even, I mean, the only thing I knew about it was what my late husband's exhibit. I was very familiar with that. But already that was kind of like an old style and, you know, it, it wasn't exactly what the judges we're looking for these days. So I, I really was starting pretty much from scratch. And I remember the um, one frame exhibit at the club was coming up. And I said, oh, I don't remember. Somebody said, are you exhibit? I said, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And Roger Brody said, well, do you have 16 pages of material? And I said, oh, yeah, I got that. And he said, all right, put something up. And I did. I did terrible, but because I had no idea. <laughs> the only thing I could figure out was that I looked at my all this material. I said, well, these these things went through Liverpool. They went, you know, they either came from Liverpool or they went. So I did based on something like um, the importance of Liverpool beyond the Beatles or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I didn't do very well. But, you know, people were still uh supportive you know it wasn't I, I remember um I think Scott Treppel was <laughs> the judge <laughs> so uh, he was very generous with his I wasn't that I wasn't able to be there that night but I'm I'm supposing he was very generous with his criticism so and and then I I realized you know little by little paying attention to other exhibits um I I started recognizing kind of what to do and, um, you know, had a, a better beginning after that. Um, and, um, and I liked it because it made, it was a discipline and it mm -hmm. made me look at the material in a different way. And it made me recognize what stories really are in a postal history exhibit. And some of them are very powerful. So um, I think it was a good thing. I think it was a good thing to, um, to exhibit. It seems like with exhibiting, the biggest hurdle is just doing something, anything. And you are going to get panned the first couple of times, but it seems oh, like yeah. that's the biggest barrier. And then once you put something out there, it's easy to fine tune it and tweak it and build upon it and expand it. But it seems like it's that, again, just putting something on the, the pages in the frames that is yeah. the, the you know biggest barrier to entry. 
And I think, again, people are more sensitive that um, you don't want to turn people off. Mm. You don't want an, a, a, a new or fairly new exhibitor getting hurt. And so you have, and I think the judges in general are very sensitive to that now. And, um, and people, other people want to be encouraging. I think it's a, it's a, a, a good hobby for that reason. You know, some people say it's solitary. I have a good friend that says, oh, I don't know. He said, you're always doing something, you know, it's, kind of social. For me, it's a solitary hobby. He said, I go in my office and I look at my stuff and, you know, I like that I'm by myself or whatever. And that's true when you're doing your research or when you are thinking about how to organize things. And that's great. It's very relaxing. It's kind of something sort of Zen about it. You know, you block out everything else. But the flip of that is that there are so many good people in the hobby that you, you're you not taking advantage of the whole thing by just being by yourself. Then there is that whole other side of the shows and the events and the parties and the friendships that come about in the hobby. That if you limit yourself to having it be a solitary hobby, you, you really are losing, I think, out on a great uh, advantage. Yeah. yeah we, we've talked about that a number, touched upon that a number of times throughout the people who are, who collect as an island or people who participate in organized philately. And, and the, the people who participate in organized philately, they, they really find it's so much easier to acquire material. If they're looking for, to, to exhibit, they, People are all their friends are always out on the lookout for material for them, and it's it's easier to to buy to sell to it, it. It just makes it a more enjoyable hobby. Exactly, and it's easier to get information. Yeah, if you know people and you need help, it's it's so everybody's willing to help, and it's easier to find to get in touch with the right person. So when, when you talk about the, the social aspect of the hobby, I feel like there's another side to that coin as well, which is the volunteering side. I feel mm. like a lot of people, uh, they, you know, they do collect and maybe they do go to a show and maybe they do have some friends and they go out to dinner. But, you know, we've talked to Wade Soddy. We've talked to Wayne Youngblood. We've talked to people who are so generous uh, with their time, which is something that, um, uh, you know, it, it's certainly not expected of anyone. And I think anybody who does step in to fill a role I deal with you whenever I have to sign my contract for advertising in the Chronicle. And I know you're very involved in, in both the classic society and, and the Royal Philatelic Society. Um, so w- can you talk a little bit about that? What, you know, what, what, you know, what compels you and what could compel listeners to, to maybe give back and not just focus on my collecting or my dealing, or, you know, again, it's, it's a very selfless act that I, I feel like certain people are, uh, you know, they just go above and beyond. Um, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question very nicely because I did want to kind of touch on this. I think volunteering has a lot to offer for a couple reasons. One is if someone has, let's say, retired, it is a way of putting your life experience um, into action again. It gives you purpose 
uh, and and it allows you to use your skills in some way. You know, you there are are roles that somebody can play that can use their um, past uh, work experience or just life experience, and um, I think that's very satisfying for people who are maybe not working anymore. The other way, the other side is that it may broaden what you, uh, what your experiences are. Like I said, I came from a design background and I'm doing advertising managing and I didn't know a thing about this. And I, you know, never had any corporate experience or anything. And um, it's been very satisfying to do something else even. Uh, I have to say Fred Gregory approached me about this and he was very convincing because, I mean, I thought, I don't, how am I going to do this job? I don't know what, you know, but he was very, he just wasn't going to let it go. So I accepted it and I like it. And I, I mean, we had a little, some challenges with selling ads. We lost advertisers as soon as I came on board. Uh, But, uh, you know, I was able to keep it going and bring some different ideas to it because I wasn't in that field. I I didn't know what I was doing. I just, you know, could think again outside the box, I guess, if you will, of the cliche. But that's the other side of the volunteering. So you can bring something that you've experienced to the hobby, or you could get something new to do. And um, and I think it's um, it's very satisfying. Yes, you're self, self, sort of selfless, uh, giving it to the hobby. But I think you, when you volunteer for these jobs, you get an awful lot back. And you usually get a lot of appreciation, which is really very good. People appreciate what you're doing and recognize it. The Royal is like that. Anything you do for the Royal, they recognize it. They are very appreciative, very supportive. That's why I like that uh, society a lot. Yeah, I think that's a part of organized philately that most people don't really think about the fact that that they need volunteers and that that people can volunteer and become that much more engaged with the organizations it's not just sign up for a membership pay your dues it's you know if you actually want to help if you like what they're doing um you can do you can do your part and make it make it a better place without i was gonna say you you when you talk about it it is definitely a two-way street that you learn new things you probably learn, you know, you learn a lot philatelically and personally and professionally. So it's not just this society needs me, so I'm going to help. It's, yeah. you know, again, you talk about, you know, maybe retirees who who have skills to offer, whether it's their, um, you know, somebody was a lawyer or, or can provide their expertise to a society. I think that's um, really, really important. I think any profession one has had, there is a place in philately for mm-hmm. you. You know, whether you're marketing or, like you said, an attorney or a designer or anything, I mean, um, uh, there's a place for you. So um, I think it's a great hobby for for that reason. So how long have you been volunteering with the Classics in the Royal? Um, The Classic Society, well, the Classic Society, it's probably 
eight or so years now. It I doesn't oh. seem that long, but I think <laughs> it's something like that. Uh, the Royal, uh, I, I, um, my position as uh, the representative for the uh, Northeast is uh, fairly new because mm-hmm. Eddie did that job. And when he passed away, I was offered uh, that position, which actually made sense because I helped him and I knew, you know, what, and I accepted. Uh, before that, I was only active as a member. Mm-hmm. I would go to the Royal in London and have a presence there. And that was appreciated. And, um, you know, I would be active in the events at shows. And uh, 2016, when we had the International in New York, my role in the organizing committee was sort of a liaison for um, organizations that wanted to have events you know, they're not in New York. They needed help. I mean, New York's a big place so, uh, and an expensive place. Mm-hmm. And so I helped um, put all these uh, parties, these parties together. And the one for the Royal was a very big success. And again, they were so appreciative. Um, Eddie had uh, arranged for a booth and we were we worked very hard at that. And it was successful, and um, they recognized it. I mean, um, they were very appreciative. That was the dinner at the boathouse? Yes, it was. That was a great one. Yeah, everybody liked the cocktails outside. I, I had this philosophy for all of the events that I did um, that I wanted them all, when you went to a party, you were aware that you were in New York. Yeah. Because oftentimes you go to shows, they're in the hotels. You could be anywhere in the world, basically. It all is the same, you know? It looks the same. It seems the same. And then you don't really remember where did this happen? Where did that happen? So my idea was I wanted things to read New York. You know, I wanted you to know when you went to this event. The Collectors Club was at um, Bryant Park you know, behind the library and uh, Monte Carlo. I did at the top of a building that had a fabulous view of the Empire State Building, (laughs) all lit up. And um, I think I put a small, oh, I put the Hungarian Society. I think it was the Hungarian in a little pastry shop on the east (laughs) side where, you know, they took over the whole little restaurant and, um, and, and the, uh, proprietors ended up giving them food to take home. I mean, it was just I couldn't I couldn't join them, but it, everybody had a good time. So um, I enjoyed doing that. Yeah, that was fun. And the one I did for the Royal was a big success, and they did really appreciate it. So um, I was um, pleased about that a lot. Uh, the other there's there's a story I want to tell. And, and it's about the social, since we're talking about parties. Yeah. Monte Carlo is a fun, you know, it's a fun show. It's not competitive, uh, but very, very high and serious philately. Um, 
there was uh, an event in Bruges uh, that Patrick Masalas put together. It wasn't the normal show, uh, but it too was a very serious philatelic event, but very much fun. And it started um, with a dinner on 4th of July. It was uh, unusual for me because I'd never been away from home on the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. I'd never been away from the barbecue pit on the 4th of July. (laughs) So, you know, I accepted this. And when I was going, I kind of didn't know if maybe I was regretting being away from home, you know, for the 4th of July. So the first event was actually on that date. And I had told some folks, you know, some of our friends, some of my friends, I was by myself, uh, Wade Saadi and and his wife, Gail, we were the only Americans. And uh, so I was telling some friends, well, you know, it's the 4th of July and I'm away from home. So, but I've been practicing the national anthem (laughs) (laughs) as a, you know, kind of a joke. And when we walked in, I told Patrick, uh, he was greeting everybody, said, Patrick, oh, it is so nice of you to do this for Wade and I, Wade and Gail and I, this is so nice of you to do this. And he's like, what? I said, well, you're having this 4th of July party for us because, you know, <laughs> we're away from home. Well, you know how clever he is. So by the time we sat down, he had this whole story about, you know, something about former British colonies, you know, making a fuss or I don't know. It was very funny. And then um, Brian Trotter, uh, a friend who I had been talking to about practicing my national anthem, says, oh, and she was she was she's practicing the Star Spangled Banner so she can sing the Star Spangled Banner. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And they were serious. <laughs> and so, yeah, and they're pressuring us. And um, Patrick's wife, Siska, comes over. And, oh, and she's saying yes. yes. So Wayne and I start singing. And, <laughs> and Gail is like, you know, put your hand over your heart. Stand up, stand up, you know, because I'm, so we stand, go like this. The whole room stood put their hands over their heart and sang to whatever extent they could with us. Mm -hmm. We were the only Americans. There were three Americans in a room full of all kinds of nationalities. And everybody stood and everybody was, it was the most moving thing. I'll tell you, I thought, this 4th of July is the most memorable I've had. Better than being at the barbecue. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing you get out of the, um, out of the social events, something Mm -hmm. like that, which to me is just, uh, just a wonderful moving evening of pride. I mean, I just was so uh, uh, 
proud that I was there and kind of representing in a way, you know, the United States and everybody being so, um, so right there with you. Yeah. And you tell people these stories. And I, I think a lot of people probably don't ever imagine stuff like this coming out of stamp collecting. You know, you think of stamp collecting in such a, or a lot of people maybe have a limited view of it where you sit there and you lick the hinge and put the stamp in the album. Mm -hmm. And then you tell them how you end up in Bruges on the 4th of July, singing the national anthem with people from every continent. And it, it just goes to show you, you're right, how much more there is to this hobby than exactly the, the, the respect and admiration that philatelists have for their peers i don't think is something shared among many other hobbies i i, I definitely haven't seen it going to many other trade shows of, of different uh different collectibles and anything like that it's just that everybody just just puts everybody on the same level and they just they're just so excited to have uh friends in the hobby and share their passion with each other and stories like that it, it perfectly uh, are a perfect example of, of it that breaks exactly. down all language and cultural yeah. barriers and everything because we're all we've all got the same disease if you want to call it that <laughs> well and that's it i don't think i have it because i don't have, i've lived i lived with two people who have had the collector gene mm -hmm. and so i know um that i don't uh, the only other, I don't know about other, uh, I, I think there are other hobbies that are just as, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I have friends that quilt and things like that. Oh, yeah. I yeah. don't, but they are. And I remember when I was running, I was a member of the New York Roadrunners Club. It too, people were very mm -hmm. supportive. And so there are things out there where... Uh, people do share and yeah. encourage you and even if you're you're not good they still cheer for you mm -hmm. and want you to do well and feel good about yourself um our hobby is exactly like that yeah there may be others out there but ours is i can say for for sure ours is like that yeah most definitely that's why i'm in it yeah, I, I think mean, that's really. why a lot of people are. I, I think that's why they volunteer. I think that's why they, they stay with it. You know, they, they will see people who sell their collections and they don't want to leave the hobby, so they start collecting something else. You know, they've completed that task. They're going to move on to the next one. So it's, it's uh, I think the passion for philately extends beyond anyone in, anyone's individual passion for a specific subject within philately. Well, that's why I... Um that's why I'm in it. My late mm -hmm. husband was a collector. I was not. And he exhibited. And um, I supported him. I went to shows with him. And uh, I didn't, you know, spend much time at the show. He would he would kind of like reconnoiter the whole area. And then he'd come back to me and say, you might like to see this. Or so-and-so, a good friend, had look at his, you know, we're going to go to dinner, take a look. And so I would go and I'd look. I wouldn't really know anything about it. I mean, I knew a little bit about his because, you know, I did his mounting for him. Mm -hmm. But when he passed away and um, I um, had to I didn't have to, but I sold his collection. I couldn't show it anymore in his name. And I could have held it for a number of years and showed it my own. But why would I? It wasn't my collection. You know, it was Harvey's collection. Yeah. And so when I sold it, I realized I did want to stay connected in the hobby 
because I had friends. I had met people. I liked the people. I didn't know anything about postal history (laughs) and much less about stamps, but I knew somehow I wanted to stay in the hobby. And um, it's not, it isn't the kind of hobby where you have, um, what do I want to say? Groupies. You know, there are (laughs) fans that follow the shows around. Yeah. Yeah. To like, you know, no, that, that's that's not the case. So if you're going to be in the hobby, you do have to be involved in some way. And so I thought, well, I'll just start my own collection, which mm-hmm. is what I did. And that's why I was able to get so much so quickly, because I just took the money that was in Harvey's exhibit and spent it on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people don't get that kind of opportunity, but... Um, that's how I that's how I was able to put something together so quickly, actually, is I just went out and bought what I liked. So can you oh go ahead, Charles. Okay, go ahead. I was just gonna ask if you could you talk a little bit about your first exhibit and uh kind of what what it consisted of and, and now what you're what you're working on. Well, the very first I told you was the one about Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That was just again 16 pages of material. Um, and then, in fact, that Bruce show, I showed uh, um, a couple of frames of material that I, I was kind of putting something together about the first um, treaty, mm-hmm. the first GBUS treaty. You know, and I was mulling it about. I didn't exactly know where to go with it. So I, I had a variety of things that in there all about the treaty and um and then by doing that i kind of realized i had to um not just put a fence around it but i I had to do something very specific about the treaty and that led to the treaty rates uh so i did have a one frame that dealt with uh, the first treaty rates. I still have that. And that's a very successful, I won a reserve grant for that uh, exhibit. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a really good one frame. My first multi-frame was at the APS show in Hartford. I can't remember what year. It must have been, is it 2000 and? 13 or 14 or some 14 because that was my first is that it yeah and that was my first big exhibit also I had no clue I just took everything actually it was kind of cute I had a big if you can imagine a big line with a boat and an arrow and everything going from the U.S. to GB on one page and everything going the other way on Hmm. I mean on a nut frame on another frame it was kind of cute it's totally not the way to things together (laughs) but you know I had good material so I got like a large verme or something Uh, but as an exhibit it wasn't uh, it wasn't good it it and and I remember Pat Walker saying well you know she was explaining about the 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 titles the headers and how that had to lead through and she said but when you I said, but how do you know what those are? She said, well, when you 
start really thinking about it, studying it, it'll it'll come, you'll get it. And it did. It did. She was very gentle about it. You know, she didn't say, oh, you have to do this. Or you have to do that. She said, no, you know, you look at it, you study it, it'll come to you. And, um, and it did once I, I realized what I was supposed to do. There's much more, even recently, about how to put an exhibit together. You know, a lot written about it. There are seminars you can go to, and there's a lot of things. There's a lot of help one can have. Uh, I wasn't so much aware of that, and I don't know how much existed back then anyway, but mm-hmm. I got help from from judges, from friends and such, and I figured it out. Now I have... Um, uh, an A-frame. I had a 10-frame that got very good um, um, awards here nationally. And I have an A-frame that did uh, very well internationally. At Stockholmia, I did very well. I was one point off the lead. I, I had like 97, 96 points. And that's, I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled. Wow. So, um, and it didn't take too long, but you know, you, one can do it even yeah. at my even at my age. <laughs> well, so I, I guess my my last question for you is, you know, I, I assume you want to keep working on that exhibit, and you talked about you know having some some time during uh, the last year to to work on exhibits. But where do you hope to go? Even if you don't have the the collector gene that so many of us have, it seems like you're really entrenched and i hope you're you're not going anywhere anytime soon no. so so where where do you see yourself going from here how you know what, what what are your your goals for the next uh you know next next year or two for for your your philatelic uh, uh part of your life well i am going to keep this exhibit until i do my presentation at the royal which will be in a year now i was supposed to uh, do it in june but um I was offered uh, to postpone it and be able to do it live rather than on Zoom, yeah. and I cho- and I chose that. Uh, so I will keep it for that. Then I think uh, uh, what I want to do is um, have some have some smaller uh, subsections of that uh, because uh, you know once I've done a lot of research on on this on this material, I've shown it. And, you know, sometimes there's only so much you can do. Things just get a little tired, maybe. And um, it's not fresh. People don't want to always see the same thing. And you don't always want to work. I mean, if you want something new, this is, you know, there's not that much to add or whatever. So I think I will do some smaller areas uh, related printed matter, I like light fees, you know, something very much more specific and maybe divest uh, myself of some of these um, beauties that I have. But I think I've um, been their caretaker for long enough and then they can go on to somebody else. Sounds like the the kind of trajectory that, that most people take. Yeah, they, they, they look on completing one thing and then and then moving on to the next thing that 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 drives their interest I think I won't go into a different direction Mm -hmm. and I don't think I'll do anything quite this um extensive yeah um I think I'll do some 
things, specific things more limited. I'm sure that as you've collected, there's been rabbit holes that you've wanted to go down. You talk about printed matter or something like that is is interesting. And uh, and yeah, that that's an entire field in and of itself um, to, to study. Mm-hmm. I think so. And, um, you know, um, it's a little smaller. <laughs> yeah. Most yeah. people go the other direction and get more and more expansive. I'm I'm jealous that you're looking to <laughs> narrow your focus. Unlike, unlike so many. Well, I think um, maybe time is an issue. Um, and um, I, but you know, I might change my mind. You never know. I might totally find something else, but this is what I'm thinking for now. Fantastic. Well, uh, best of luck on, on that. And thank you so much for, for meeting with us and talking to us. It's been a lot of fun to catch up. I miss, you know, you're, the, the yeah. whole New York scene that I was just getting used to by the time everything locked down. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame that it's, um, it's been like this, but hopefully once, once we get back up on our feet, I'll, uh, I'll see you down at the collector's club again. I'm sure you will. I want to thank you both for this opportunity. Oh. Um, it's always nice to talk about oneself. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and to tell, um, stories like I did about the, um, event in Bruges, you know, I was thinking about it because because of the virus and the president said, well, 4th of July, you know, we're maybe going to be able to have our backyard barbecues. And it, it made me think of this. So it was a yeah. perfect time to tell the story. I don't remember telling this story um, before. And um, and it is very touching to me. Yeah. It's something I, I, I'm glad to put out there. That's what Michael and I love so much about this. I, I saw your exhibit in Stockholm and, and, you know, people who know you philatelically, that's, that's one way to get to know somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of the people we've talked to, I've read their articles or seen their exhibits, but it's a, a completely different thing to talk to them as people rather than collectors, which I, which I think has been for me, at least the, the main takeaway from getting to do this with people. So I love hearing stories like that. And that, that that's, uh, no, again, this, this was just really wonderful. Well, I'll add one more thing about collecting, and that is also in postal history, social, um, philately, any of those, those are human stories. Yeah. Uh, each each cover I look at is 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 a is a human story. Postal history, like regular history, is human history, mm-hmm. and so um, there are people behind what we do. So um, I think that's something that um, some of us really enjoy also. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. you. This was was perfect. This is is, um, the the kind of episode I I love to have. This is is fantastic. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was nice to meet you. Thank you, Michael. Same here. So take care, guys. We'll talk to you as well. I'll leave now. All right. Bye-bye. So what I liked about this interview, as I, I love them all, but what I liked about this is is that she brought up volunteering for for philatelic organizations, for societies, and for I think it's something it's something we haven't touched upon yet. Uh, enough. We, enough. Yeah, we we've haven't. A lot of people who volunteer, but I don't think we've yeah. ever specifically focused on. Yeah, we haven't spoken to them about the fact 
that they're volunteering and what they get out of volunteering, what the societies get out. And it's a mutually beneficial relationship. I also love talking to somebody who didn't collect as a child. Uh, yeah. I, I, again, that that's one of those things where you sort of take it for granted that most people have the same story. You collect as a kid, you come back into it. Uh, Carol is proof that you can break that uh, illusion. You can, um, you know, you can, you can come into the hobby later in life. You don't have to have any experience. Um, if you're retired and looking for something to do, you can just start collecting stamps and get really good at it really quick. Yeah. And I, and I love that she wanted to exhibit. So she just did it. It's yeah, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm as guilty and I've done a couple of silly little exhibits, but I'm as guilty of this as anyone where you talk about exhibiting so much. Yeah. That it like builds it up as something. And she just, yeah, you're right. She just did it. She just did it. And right. she, you know, Where she knew the first one wouldn't be the most stellar thing in the world, but, but now no, she's but won awards. Imagine having Scott Truppel judge your first exhibit. Right. <laughs> that's like, that's like being asked to, uh, you know, uh, shoot free throws in front of like, you know, uh, LeBron James. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's to play horse with him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I, I really enjoyed this this conversation. I say this about so many people. Um, I miss seeing Carol in person, and I'm glad we got to catch up. Um, one other thing we should mention, uh, by the time this airs, we will be a little more than two months out from the sale of the uh, One Cent Magenta, British Guiana. True, true. As well as the plate block of the Inverted Jenny. Yep. And the 1933 Double Eagle, all being sold by Stuart Weissman. The shoe designer and philanthropist, and uh, we're going to talk more about this as the sales approach. But mm-hmm. the elephant in the room, we have to at least mention it. Uh, yeah. As of right now, that this is this is going to be arguably the biggest philatelic uh, uh, sale of our lives. Uh, you have the two most iconic items, the, the most iconic American item and the most iconic worldwide item, uh, being sold at the same time. I think. Um, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll circle back around and hopefully have more to say about that in the coming weeks. Yeah, that, that's that's just insane. That it's that exactly what you said. It's the most valuable. the The magenta is still pound for pound the most valuable substance on earth. Yes, uh, and it's and it's wild that it's being sold right next to the most iconic American philatelic item and the most iconic is. American coin. Yes. So that, that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, in the meantime, though, people can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Google yeah. Podcasts. Yeah. Um, we have a there's, website. Yeah, philatelypodcast.com. Then there's, there's philatelypodcast at gmail.com, which is our which, email address. That is our email address, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Michael still checks that all the time. Yeah, no, I, I do. I don't. I know. I screenshot when we get things. In Whenever a, we get a cool email, you text me. Yeah, I do. And I think that works well because the first three, four weeks that we had this podcast, you kept asking for the password and I kept giving it to you and then you kept never logging in. Uh, so I this work, this system good, works out. Good homeostasis now. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, man. Well, uh, let's do it again real soon. We've got some really fun conversations coming up after this. We've got a lot of conversations. And we have a Larry lot of, Haber, the yep. president of the Collectors Club. Mm-hmm. We have uh, some other really good stuff. Uh, Rick Barrett, who uh, uh, wrote a, a great book on the 1901 Buffalo World's Fair. Uh, Dan Piazza from the National Postal Museum. Uh, we've got good stuff coming. I'm really excited about these. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I look forward to all of them, but I'm well, we're like forward to these. we're like really in a groove right now. We've got so many lined up that I feel like we're really in a in a uh, an exciting place for for CWP. 
Yeah, I'm I, I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to the future of this show. This has been a great episode. Looking forward to the next ones, and uh, let's do it again yeah, real. Let's, soon. Yeah, let's do it again real soon. Sounds good, man. I'll talk All to right. you later. All right, see ya.